This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Destinations International. Next up on the event calendar is MarCom. That is the Marketing and Communications Summit, the preeminent gathering place for marketing, communications, and public relations professionals dedicated to helping destination organizations thrive. Get inspired and lift your creativity to a whole new level in some place that is truly elevated, Salt Lake City. February 27, 28, and 29, and registration is now open in the event section at destinationsinternational.org. And now it's on to our show. Joshua Schomberger has served as the president and CEO of Think Iowa City and the Iowa City Area Sports Commission for the past 22 years. In this capacity, he oversees the destination marketing and community betterment efforts for the greater Iowa City Coralville area. He's been recognized twice by the Upper Midwest CVB Association for Bureau Innovation. He's recognized every year since 2004 by the Corridor Business Journal as one of the 25 most influential corridor leaders and was named Person of the Decade by the Iowa City Press Citizen. Josh was recently recognized by the Iowa Economic Development Authority as the 2023 Outstanding Individual Leader in the Iowa Tourism Industry. He was inducted this past summer into the Glenn Brand and Dan Gable National Wrestling Hall of Fame for the positive international impact he has provided to the sport of wrestling. Josh grew up as a military brat, living in places like Cuba, Puerto Rico, Florida, California. He now resides in Coralville with his wife, Jessica, and their two boys, Garrison and Oliver. Josh Schomberger, welcome to DMOU. Well, thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having me. So let's get the superlatives on the table. So most DMO pros would be elated to be named Person of the Year. You've actually, as we just said, were named by local media as Person of the Decade, and that was before you led the drive to build the state-of-the-art $65 million Extreme Arena and Green State Family Fieldhouse, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to start off with your first question, and it's about the overall philosophy by which you view destination marketing. I remember watching when you came on the scene, and when you started at what is now known as Think Iowa City in 2001, if there was a playbook that your predecessor left, you ignored it. So tell us how you chose to be so bold in your first CEO position and how that helped you envision something like FryFest. Well, first off, I want to say that I appreciate you, Bill. You know, there's, let's just start there and get that out of the way. I know I, I relay that for hundreds of my peers across the country, and that's not an understatement. There are hundreds uh, for the work that you've done and, and Terry as well, well for you. decades now, you know, from, from the one person, small operations in the middle of Iowa, like Fort Dodge, Iowa, yeah. <laughs> to multi-million dollar DMOs. I just think you've made such a huge impact and you're a mentor to, to far more than you really know. And I actually do know you're smart because your daughter did come here to become an <laughs> Iowa mom, right? So thank you. Yeah. But um, I wanted to get that out of the way. and, and uh, oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Very kind. I appreciate you. So yeah, a little bit about, you know, what we've tried to grow and lead over the years, I guess. I, I think when I got here, as I've thought about this question a little bit, it was quite obvious to me anyway, that, that we're not just about heads and beds. And I'm sure when I say that somebody out there just took a shot of something, 
but seriously, I, I saw our role as far more about quality of life than conferences and meetings. And I remember early on being at an IACVB annual meeting, and that's how old we are when we're using those acronyms. Right. And someone there making reference to doing the math on what the visitor taxes were saving the local household. And they had actually equated that to an exact number based on the number of households in their community uh, in an effort to really bring it home. And that sort of thing always stuck with me. Uh, you know, water, power, trails, public art were certainly all made easier and in some cases actually possible uh, because of a, you know, a growing visitor tax revenue. And so I remember we worked pretty hard and, and again, that stuck with me to amplify that, but not only with just messaging and doing our own formulas, but actions. So we began a long-term strategy in the early part of the 2000s to to not only uh, you know speak about it, but invest into local quality of life and large-scale community development efforts. You know to identify these, to strengthen these, and where it was made possible to actually be on the team that blueprinted out some of these core, you know, transit-oriented development sectors, for the sake of really turning them into attractors versus attractions. And, you know, my definition, I've used that a few times over the years, my definition of an attractor is, you know, people are actually coming to your community because of that. And we're all communities are filled with attractors at some levels and, right. and then attractions while you're in town, you know, go take a look at this little attraction or at least nice venue. Right. You know, anyway, that's appeared to work for us a bit over the last couple of decades. And none of it was certainly possible without a, there's, you know, a parallel track media and public relations strategy or. Certainly, in my particular situation, a very, very strong town and gown relationship with the university. But we've been pretty fortunate to have some pretty damn good partners over the years, and, or at least been sincere and honest and transparent enough in the way that we lead, in the way that we communicate, that we've turned some of those folks into damn good partners. Well, let me take this a different way, and thank you again for the kind words, but I have to tell you that your name and your bureau comes up almost every time I'm in front of a board of directors as we go through the process to update, you know, purpose, values, mission, and vision. Because, and you said it, but I think the key here is that you were doing this well before it became vogue or a thing, is that you were talking quality of life in the aughts. You were, in fact, you actually, and this is where I usually call your name, you reversed your mission statement. Typically, mission statements is we do this, we do this, we do this in order to enhance quality of life. And you said we enhance quality of life by doing X, Y, and Z. And I remember talking to you about this, I don't know, 15 years ago, when you said that's the filter that anything we're going to talk about has to qualify as improving quality of life, or why are we talking about it? And I thought that was just brilliant. And that is not the way most of us came up through the ranks thinking about the job at hand. And that's why you've been such a thought leader and why I was, and why this first question is, what was in the water for you that you came in without really a lot of guidance from other DMOs across the land and said, we're going this way? I might throw it right back at you because it might have been you that said this way back in the day that also kind of stuck with me and uh, or it was somebody else at one of these early conferences and they kind of equated some communities and you 
look at it in sports, you're either a football university or you're a basketball university. And you know that if you think of North Carolina, you immediately think of basketball. Right. You know, you think of some of these schools, Ohio State, probably football, Michigan football. And somebody made the connection there that that also happens in our world. You're either a chamber town or you're a CVB town or you're a DMO town. And usually one of them is the stronger leader in terms of community and economic development. Mm-hmm. You know, they both have important roles, but one of them is is very obviously the lead. And, and I, I wanted to be that leader. You know, I, I wanted us to think more about community development and quality of life and to have those elected officials and particularly the city managers lean into us and depend on us. I wanted them as city managers, and we have four of them here that I work with regularly. I wanted them to be proud and to, and to depend on us for their elected officials. And, and we don't need the credit, but we want to be the deft hand behind kind of all the cool shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And that, that's not just events and activities, but that's developments and TODs and things like that. So I just made a point to try and work with our board. And, you know, we went down this path of broadening our mission to serve the community in the best way that we can and provide expertise beyond, again, just heads in beds, um, but about community building and community development. And that obviously translated most easily to quality of life because our organizations and DMOs around the country are the are the organization in any community that are most closely aligned with quality of life. Absolutely. You can go and see the chamber and the economic development arms tout their surveys about what do they look for when they're looking at relocating or starting up and, and what's always at the top quality of life. Well, that's us. So let, let's own it. Let's build it. And then that investment that gets passed through either through lodging tax or other investments is not just because of uh, you're trying to book the the state library association but because you've built quality of life you do book the state library association and you become a magnet exactly for right. leisure visitors for every possible reason so you're right it's a flip from the old heads and beds heads and beds still occur and probably occur more effectively more rapidly mm-hmm. when you lead and this gets back to simon sinek when you lead with start with why and why is quality of life? And then you roll it back and you create things. And I don't know which order. I've forgotten. It's been long enough that we've known each other. But that philosophy of yours of quality of life spawned two really amazing tourism magnets, one Herky on Parade and the other Fry Fest. Give us a little background on those two before we get to your second question. Yeah, well, Herky on Parade kind of came first. And I remember Chicago back in, I think, 1999 was the first American city to put the cows on parade. And now everybody's done it, right? Uh, you've seen right. it all over the cities. But sure. I saw that and I was just really inspired. And, and I was in another community at the time, Cedar Rapids. And Cedar Rapids is the birthplace of Grant Wood. And uh, American Gothic. Right. And I was like, oh, we, we could leverage this and put American Gothic. Well, Terry and I have done the pose. Overalls all over. <laughs> At the house. Yeah. Haven't we all? <laughs> so then... Uh, Give me the pitchfork. Take a picture. Exactly right. So sh- shortly after that, I um, <laughs> was fortunate to get the opportunity down here. And there was a big renovation of Kinnick Stadium, the largest football stadium here, certainly with the University of Iowa. And they wanted to do something to bring exposure to that. So we thought about putting Hurt Key Arm Parade in. And that was early on in 2004, and it just exploded. And we did it again 10 years later, and we've raised just a boatload of money over those programs. And 
Then my very good friend up there by you, Dev Archer, and they called me and they wanted to put Bucky on parade. So I helped them out a little bit with that and they made a lot of money. And I've been here long enough that we're actually doing it again next summer. It will have been the 20th anniversary. So yeah. it's coming back. All right. And then FryFest was just another deal to where it was just a great opportunity to, to leverage our relationship with the University of Iowa. And, you know, we were looking at uh, football home games and obviously the conference games here, you get two and sometimes three night minimums and really good rate for all the conference. But that first game or two when we're playing Middle Tennessee State, uh, no offense to them or, or you know, um, Utah State, you know, those fan bases just aren't traveling. They're not going to come up here and watch watch their team play in Kinnick Stadium. So yeah. we thought, hey, here's an opportunity to to create a new event on the Friday before the first home game when everybody thinks we're going 12-0 and 0 and we're so excited. And uh, let's honor Coach Hayden Fry, who's a legend. And, you know, we, we thought we'd put on a one-day festival and kind of give him a toast. And we did that, and every hotel room in town sold out. And we had 25,000 people show up for the first home game 24, 36 hours early. And now that weekend is like a conference weekend, and we're now approaching our 16th year. Yeah. So it's it's, it's worked well. Uh, obviously, anytime you can partner with somebody like that, it's 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 a lot easier. And as listeners to this podcast know, I love things that work on multiple levels. And so, one, you're building relationships with the university, but more importantly, you're filling a weekend that was probably what 40, 50 percent occupancy, you know, and creating an event that celebrates all things Hawkeye, the entire community comes together. It's not just for visitors. And yet you fill rooms in what every contiguous county yeah. <laughs> with this amazing event that really, if it was just one reason, it's filling a fairly dead weekend and you did it. Yeah, it's been fun. Again, we're coming up on, we just finished the 15th year, I believe. And People keep coming back, and now it's generation after generation who go, oh, yeah, I was here, and that's how Herky and Parade's coming. I mean, we have young professionals that work at our organization that, I remember when I was just a baby, my parents taking me around all the Herkies, and I'm like, oh, my God, don't tell me that again. (laughs) All right. So Iowa, as you said, some towns are football towns. Some towns are basketball towns. You're known as a football town, but you're also known as a wrestling town or a wrestling university, Olympic caliber wrestling. In fact, you've got Olympic gold medalist Dan Gable as the voiceover on your phone telling, not asking people to leave a message, but despite, and I love that. I mean, I, whenever I call you, I hope that you don't pick up because I love listening to your voicemail message, but despite Iowa's rich wrestling history, facilities dedicated to the sport, honestly, were fairly subpar and that is no longer the case. Tell us how you and Think Iowa City changed the destination's worldwide reputation as Wrestling Town USA. Yeah, well, it's actually been easy, to tell you the truth. Certainly, as we were moving forward, we want to build and and develop a community based on our core attributes and what we're kind of known for uh, around the world and and take advantage of those opportunities to to build on that. And certainly, wrestling is one of them. Literature is another. Uh, You know, we're certainly one of only two UNESCO cities of literature in North America uh, with, with Seattle. And we were third in the world to be named. So wrestling though, you know, goes back to 1973 and when Iowa state made the mistake of allowing Dan Gable to graduate there and turn into an Olympic gold medalist and then leave. And he came here (laughs) and he became the head coach of the university of Iowa and reeled off 
ridiculous 15 national championships, uh, hundreds and hundreds of big 10 championships, gold medals, everything. And so, you know, he's, he's certainly built a brand and of, of this being wrestling town USA. And, uh, we kind of coined that back in, uh, 2008 when I saw that there was an opportunity that USA wrestling was going to open up a bid process to host the Olympic trials. And, you know, I organized a team that included coach Gable and coach brands and some others high up in the wrestling community. And, Flew out to Colorado Springs and made our case against Columbus, Ohio, and Washington, D.C., and some others, maybe Vegas. And we were fortunate to receive the bid. And then, you know, in that situation, it's all about making them never question wanting to go anywhere else because of the way we've delivered the event. So just always striving in that event or anything we do and in setting a new standard to when those folks go home, they go, Ah, you should have done it like Iowa. Uh, This is how Iowa did it. And so we've kind of parlayed that first Olympic trials bid that we were successful in back in 2010. We were awarded 2012, and now we've hosted the largest events around the world. And I'm fortunate to travel. um, I I go over to Europe about once or twice a year, uh, not only for wrestling, but for cycling. We've uh, turned into an international cycling community as well with with cyclocross. And thankfully, those two governing bodies are only one train stop away in uh, Switzerland. So you can hit them both on the same trip. And it's worked. You know, just this past December, we had 18 countries here for the World Cup. It was the first time in history that the men's and women's World Cup had taken place at the same time in the same place. And we welcome the likes of Ukraine, the Ukraine women's team, Iran, China, Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, France. I mean, they, there was wrestlers from all over the world and come to Iowa because they know about Wrestling Town USA. So, you know, you mentioned the, the Ukraine women's team. And I know, and those who are fans of this podcast know that we had the director of the Lviv Convention and Visitors Bureau on the show right after she made, I think, just one of the more poignant uh, comments at Destination International's annual convention in Dallas in July when we were talking about the uh, concept of what keeps you up at night. And when the uh, moderator went to the audience, she held up her iPhone and punched the uh, button for audio, and it was the air raid siren that she hears almost every single day, which puts the world in perspective. And so you know, meeting people from Ukraine or any uh, country that is under duress or, or challenges, that has to be just one of those moments. So tell us about how you got the team to Iowa City and how you interacted with them to make sure that they knew how much we supported them. Yeah, well, I've actually got a funny story on that, so you may have to edit down a, a little bit, but there's a couple things here. I We were awarded the bid to host the World Cup after we successfully hosted it in 2018, just the men's side. But after that, I went to Vevey, Switzerland, and I met with, I brought one of my folks with me, and we met with the governing body and said, you know, we want to take this to the next level. And the next level is the growth of women's and girls wrestling in not only our country, but the world. And so would you allow us the opportunity to put together a proposal to host the men and women on the same stage and to move that forward and to be an example by which the rest of the world can follow and see equality in athletics. And they noodled it for a while and they ultimately decided that 
they wanted to give this a try. So we were successful in that, and that required me to go to Serbia in um, 2021. I no 2022. I went to serve to Belgrade for the World Championships, and I had to meet with all of the teams that qualified for the World Cup. And there were two countries in particular that I was pretty anxious about meeting with. One of them was Iran, and the other was Ukraine. And Obviously, Ukraine, because of what has been going on with the Russian invasion of their country, and then Iran, just because of what's been going on in Iran uh, and the connections there. So Mm -hmm. I remember being a little nervous about that. I mean, I was also meeting with China and Japan and other countries, but those were relatively easy, straightforward meetings. But with these two countries in particular, they obviously also are not interested in even the women's team corresponding with, even though they're not in the same, I mean, the men wrestle in Iran, the women don't, the Ukraine men and women, but with Ukraine, I met with them and just wanted to basically let them know that, you know, we couldn't be more excited and we will tell their story and and they will be the highlight of this event. This was happening about three months after. And, and uh, I've developed a very close relationship with the Ukrainian women's team that included them coming back here just a few weeks ago. And I hosted them for 10 days and while they were training here for two months in America, since they have nowhere to train. But with Iran, uh, it was really interesting. I got summoned. I use that word in particular. I was summoned by the uh, the president of the Iranian Wrestling Federation and his translators to come and meet with them in this room that was a little open and there was some other teams in there. And they wanted to talk about the visas and how this was going to work because they qualified. And So I came in to the room and it looked like it was already an orchestrated, I was going to be on the cover of the Iranian television news the entire night. They had a camera crew, they had about 20 people and they wanted to videotape all of this as if I was some sort of ambassador shaking hands with this president of Iran who just six months earlier had said, it's not, you can't just say death to America, you have to act on it. Wow. So I sat down with him and I, I was just there to talk about like the schedule (laughs) and I had a camera crew pop out from the side and they zoomed in close on my shirt because I had a Team USA and wrestling shirt with the American flag and they were orchestrating this nonsense. And so I ended up working my way through it and it was, it was awkward and uncomfortable, but I joked afterwards when I walked by the Team USA booth, they go, holy crap, that had to be weird. And I said, yeah, just call me the Dennis Rodman of wrestling diplomacy. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately, when they came here a couple months later, and it was like hell to get them here, you know, I met them at the airport with some undercover police officers because we had been warned that there were going to be significant protests of Iran coming into the United States and wrestling in this. And I met them at the airport and I could tell that they were nervous and, and not all of them because they traveled with a couple people in particular that were definitely pro-regime and that they were there to say, you screw up and there's going to be consequences at home. But by and large, all of the people in the Iranian wrestling generation, they're just kids. I mean, yeah. they're not asking to be part of this. You know, they're here to wrestle in the sport that they love. And every day I, I told them on the bus that I said, you're not going to go anywhere and you're not going to move from hotel to arena or go anywhere without me. I said, you are wrestlers and you will be treated like rock stars as wrestlers while you're here. And if you're going to get hurt, I'm going to get hurt because I'm going to be with you. And they took that. And I think they, you could tell they were 
getting more and more comfortable. And then every day they would show up to practice, they would quote these Western American sayings. And one of them found a putty knife and came out of the corner and said, here's Johnny. And another one would say, Mr. Josh, go Cubs, go. (laughs) And I would just laugh and, you know, they're just young kids. And so I think this sport certainly transcends some of this. Now, don't get me wrong. If you pulled them in a corner, they would be on the exact same page with you on everything that's going wrong in their country, but they're not at liberty to have that free speech. Right. And so I think the Ukrainian women athlete also saw that with the Iranian men. And it's interesting. And it's not something as a DMO resident you'd ever find yourself involved in, but it's, it's weird. And it's also uh, energizing, you know, it's, it's fun to be able to make a difference like that beyond just, Hey, you had a great stay and I hope you had a great meal in town. How about you go back to Iran and you say, we love Iowa. <laughs> you know, they're good people there. Right. And isn't that exactly what sports should be? The purity of young adults on the world stage doing what they do best. And it shouldn't be about the ulterior politics. That The best part, though, Josh, I mean, what a great story. But you succeeded in not triggering an international incident no we had uh we had a couple moments at the arena that gave me a really big uh i called the chief of police two of them at one in the morning the night before the competition because we had an opening ceremonies and there were three people that hung around the arena that i could just spot along with an undercover officer were casing the joint yeah they looked abnormal So he followed them to their hotel and they got a real budget hotel on the other side of town and they had plates from another state and they didn't have a good record and they were not here for wrestling. They were here for something else. So we had to get some bomb dogs to go and while they were in their hotel, walk by their rooms and and go their hotels. And I just stayed up all night thinking, what the hell have I done? I'm trying to create an event that brought millions of dollars to our community, exposure all over the world. I mean, we are live in five countries from Iowa City, Iowa, Ah. but I'm going to possibly get key people killed. And what's going to happen? They're going to point to you brought this to our community. I mean, I'm having those thoughts because of sleep deprivation in the middle of the night. So we're doing everything we can. And then everything ended up working out. We got those guys taken care of. And the only other thing I had to worry about in the event was um, there was a bunch of Iranians that showed up that were there to protest because they knew this was being broadcast to Iranian TVs. And it was the signal. And they were hoping to be seen in the crowd and to show their support. And I was all about it. And I remember the Iranian guy, one of the coaches who was definitely there as the regime guy, telling me, get these people out of the building. And I politely telling him, that will not happen. Uh, You're in the United States, and you think this is bad. Why don't you come to an Iowa-Iowa State game? (laughs) 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 And and I'm like, we're not kicking people out for yelling. Too bad. Deal with it. And and then there was one other incident to where they stopped me, and they ran up, and they grabbed a woman who was carrying the Iranian flag, again, the pro-regime guy, because – women are not allowed to carry flags and I had to go up and cut that out and say, bud, either I brought the translator and said, tell him that either his flag is going to leave the building completely along with them, or a woman can carry a flag in the United States. So all interesting things that you can put on my resume. Yeah. 
did you ever imagine, right? <laughs> no, the answer is when no, you got Bill. Into this business, yeah, that you'd be traveling the world and trying to quell international incidents. That's yeah, and no, those are big to me, but they're minor in the grand scheme of things. And the amount of love and promise that it continues to deliver behind the brand of Wrestling Town USA is what it's all about. And this community has been the beneficiary of millions of dollars of expenditures and exposure for being the wrestling capital of the world. And we can get about any event that we want. We're currently being offered a world championships in a future year. And that will bring, you know, 90 countries here for 10 days and about probably a thousand rooms a night for 10 days. So it's all, all really good stuff. And within mission and core attributes of our community and, those are just the fun little things that you find out in a back room in Belgrade, Serbia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's bring it full circle then for your last question, because you've been able to host the world because you guys know how to do it and you do it right. And like you said, they do it better in Iowa, but you've really stamped your ownership with the $65 million extreme arena and green state family field house. Tell us about that project. That really was a Josh Think Iowa City initiative. I mean, this was this was your brainchild, right? Yeah, and I mean, not all my brainchild for sure. I mean, the, the Coralville City Council had aspirations back in the late 80s and 90s of redeveloping this 185-acre site right off the Interstate 80 known as Iowa River Landing. That's become an attractor. And, yeah, it's great. And I knew that when I first started and the first anchor tenant down there was to do one of the very first, I believe we went to Overland Park, Kansas and learned how they had a unique structure called 6320, a IRS tax structure by which the city owned the hotel uh, and conference center. And they used the hotel revenue bonds to pay off the debt on the conference center. So it didn't hit the local tax base. Right. So we did that in the Iowa River Landing. And there was also this talk in that master plan of a small arena and we had that as our third tenant. So I pushed that pretty hard along with the city manager and we tried to get it done back in the early 2000s and ran into a few obstacles. And then 2008 created a significant obstacle for uh, the country and uh, some of the economic downturn that took place then. But we brought it back full circle uh, around 2016-ish and you know, really, it was just an opportunity to create a complementary venue in our community to the universities. The university has a large basketball arena called Carver Hawkeye Arena where they, they wrestle, but it's built, you know, 35, 40 years ago. It's not air conditioned. Mm-hmm. So for the sake of what we're trying to do when the school's not in session, it's it's useless. So we knew that a smaller venue would work well and there was some demand for concerts, all those sort of things. But the entire time we were building it, I was thinking of wrestling sight lines and called a mat and feeds because I knew that this facility was going to take us to the next level in terms of that promise behind Wrestling Town USA brand. And it has done just that and more. It's now the home of the University of Iowa women's volleyball program, women's gymnastics. We have a minor league hockey team that feeds up to the Minnesota Wild. And yeah, I'm the president of the board that owns that arena and that uh, takes a lot of my time, but it sure pays off in the long run. And and it's done remarkably well 
despite opening it in September of 2020. But it is state-of-the-art. It's one of those things, and this is no shot at Iowa City or Coralville. It's just a, a recognition of the population base that you have, that you expect a facility like this in a much larger community. And clearly the university is a big player in the success of this and the rationale behind it. But I see so many communities that when they go into this type of a process, and frankly, I was just out in Richmond, Virginia, where they have just opened a unbelievable indoor sports complex. And as one of the commissioners that I was talking to was saying to me, he says, we could have built a pole barn and had the same configuration of 24 volleyball courts, 12 basketball courts, you know, whatever it is. He says, we went the other way. We did the same. I have never seen a level of finish like I saw in the Henrico sports complex. I mean, these bathrooms were better than most high-end hotels. You know, it was just one of those where you're walking through it and thinking these guys had vision, like you, that, you know, you're not going to just do this on the cheap. That building is, uh, it was amazing both to see it as, and you toured us a number of years ago while it was in process, and, it, and we could just see the vision, even though, you know, it was just basically concrete at that time. And then going back for your 20th and saying, oh my, this is pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun. And, and we knew that if we did it right, and the, the best thing was it was the, the final anchor of the I River Landing. So the hotel's infrastructure is already in place. All the restaurants and bars are already in place. The, that Lululemon that's like across the street is like the highest grossing <laughs> per square foot Lululemon in the country. It's only like a 2,200 square foot that's store. Funny. It's insane. Yeah. And it's all because of the amateur sporting events and the high school volleyball, high school wrestling, boys state duels, all of those things. The club that Caitlin Clark, who's like a national celebrity now from Iowa women's basketball, her club in, in high school plays there. And all of that, you know, we knew if we did it right, you're not going to have any competition with pole barn setups in the middle of a field with a parking lot. You're going to have three hours between sessions and wrestling and yeah. those bars like that. Cause there's a lot of bush light drinking in those three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so okay time for your bonus round question i have heard tell that there is a video floating around out there somewhere of a young and slightly inebriated joshua schomberger kicking a field goal <laughs> at halftime on a monday night football game in san diego is there such a video and if so you got to tell us the story there is a video, and that is very <laughs> accurate. Uh, I need to find the video because it's it's now, I'll be 50 here in another week and a half. So that's what, uh, a long time ago, 39 years oh, ago. Happy birthday. But I grew up in San Diego. My dad was military. I spent most of my life in San Diego or Florida or some of those other countries you, you referenced on the front end. And, you know, I, I was, I'm a big time, was a big time San Diego Chargers fan and San Diego Padres fan, still am a Padres fan and season ticket holder. And yeah, when I first was in college, I got a job. I was able to work for the San Diego Chargers as an intern marketing, nothing special. Uh, I basically went down on Monday mornings to make sure the catering was set up. Right. And uh, yeah. the guys were happy. Well, I got it. I struck a relationship with John Carney at the time, one of the kickers and some of the other players. And 
Monday night football that year was my 21st birthday and it was the, the hated Raiders. Oh yeah. And it was Raiders chargers, Monday night football. And every time before the game, they went and randomly picked three people out of the stadium, put them in a Jersey one, two, and three. And they brought them on the field and you got to kick field goals from the left hash, the center and the right hash. I believe it was from the 10 yard line or 15 yard line. And, I got picked. I was the number two kicker <laughs> and I went down there and obviously the section where I sit with was going out of control and I was inebriated a little bit in 21 and Hey, I won. Uh, the first guy kicked yeah. one. I, I kicked six and the last guy kicked zero. He, he, he So they were even more, uh, more out of control than me. <laughs> That's amazing. So it was a amazing deal. And then obviously I had a, I have a good friend here uh, who went on to kick for the San Diego chargers for 11 years, Nate Kading. And so, but yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. I have to see that video. If you find it, you've got to <laughs> share it with me. Hey, I will. I will. Hey for Josh, sure. we love the way you think always have, and we can't wait to see what's next for you for Iowa city, Coralville and your contributions as a thought leader in our world. So thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. You're the best, Bill. I'll see you in Phoenix a couple months. Looking forward to it. We'll see you there. And that's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers that this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. And be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to DMOU to be notified when every new episode drops. And thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Destinations International. Next up on the event calendar is Marcom. Marketing and Communications Summit is what that is. It's the preeminent gathering place for marketing, communications, and PR professionals dedicated to helping their destination organizations thrive. Get inspired, lift your destination to a whole new level in some place that is truly elevated. That's Salt Lake City, February 27, 28, and 29. Registration is now open in the events section at destinationsinternational.org. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, position papers on board diversity and new models for destination development, the book Destination Leadership, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus access to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. 